0: What do you think? It's great. <laughs> Rafida, <laughs> he loves the chair. He said, this is a proper Sheikh chair. You <laughs> just sat down that and, I said, what do you think? And he said, it's great. Aww. So everybody, yeah. So Rafita was so kind to see. Last time when the Sheikh was sitting down, it would look very uncomfortable. So she sent this beautiful yoga chair. So oh. now it's, yeah. Well, you can't see it now, but. And I, I pray, may, may Rafita get. Ex, you know, extreme hasanat for every time he sits in it. No, inshallah. <laughs> so, yeah. inshallah.
1: This is This is supposed to be a yoga chair?
0: I think so, right? It's not. Yeah, yeah the meditation chair. Meditation chair. It's,
1: it's an Islamic chair.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're going to co-opt it. <laughs> okay. Um, well, salamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to another wonderful Tuesday mm-hmm. evening. It's a, um, It's a beautiful day in Ohio, so I wore my California... Like springtime flowers. So um, anyway, and also hopefully to cheer us up because I, I know this is a heavy surah tonight. So inshallah, it'll be a wonderful session. Um, so uh, just a really quick housekeeping. Um, there, just uh, actually this is more for the interactive group. Um, and if anyone is interested in joining, for people are watching the interactive group, um, definitely write me. It's a, it's a way you know for us to also interact with people who can't be here in person. Um, it's you know also we can see people's faces and you know you get a chance to interact um, with the sheikhs So um, write to me if you're interested in doing that um, And part of that is to um, some of the the folks on the interactive group were interested in maybe setting up um, their own reflection group um, So if you're interested in doing that definitely let me know and you guys I sent you an email so check it out um, Okay, so um, Alhamdulillah, you know I've been talking about the whole convert experience or trying to focus on that Um, and it's interesting because I've noticed that thanks to the YouTube algorithm there's this little video that we had cut from, I think it's literally the second halakha that we ever gave at Usuli, like way back in 2017. Where it, and it's titled, The Cost of Conversion. So enough people have seen it now that it's starting to show up, like, as people are searching. And so more and more people are seeing it. It's sort of interesting. I don't really know how these algorithms work. But so I, you know, I kind of pay attention to people's reactions, which is very interesting because it ranges from, sister, you really need to wear a hijab. You know, I really can't. Um, it's such a turnoff to, like, listen to someone who doesn't wear hijab. Um, or, you know, oh my God, what are these people doing? They're trying to modernize the faith. Um, to people, you know, who are actually really supportive and, um, you know, are, are, I think, hopefully interested in what we're doing. So I think that's all, you know, a very positive sign. It's just, you know, clearly people who make comments like that are really not aware of what it is that, that we do here. Um, and I, I, you know, sometimes I just assume, of course, there are a lot of Islamophobes that are trying to kind of throw a wrench into the system. But, um, you know, we, we focus on critical thinking here, and I find this comment about trying to modernize the faith a very curious comment because it just implies that, you know, all of us are supposed to go back in time and, you know, relive, um, I, I don't know, the heyday, um, and that, you know, religion should not make sense to us today in our day and age, but, you know, back in the prophet's time. It just is very um, counterintuitive. Um, you know in any other subject area um so i just invite people to think about that but anyway um one thing i just wanted to share from the last surah um zumar on saturday which was really um really powerful for me in my early days as a convert there's certain verses that really um touch your heart because i think oftentimes when you're a convert you know there's so many different things that you are thinking about in this massive decision to adopt a new faith And part of it is, too, like, am I good enough? You know, you feel like sometimes when you have reached the depths of darkness so much and you've committed sin and you feel like how, you know, you have your own bit of self-hatred and you wonder how could God ever forgive me for the things that I've done? How could anyone like me? I don't like myself, you know, and it just as a downward spiral. So I was so um, touched um, and excited when we, you know, covered this this verse in um, on Saturday um, and it, it turned out that this was one of the um, verses that the Sheikh had considered doing as the vicar. So it's um, verse 39:53 um, and this is from the, um, the translation from um, Abdul Halim. So say, God says, my servants who have harmed yourselves by your own excess, do not despair of God's mercy. God forgives all sins. He is truly the most forgiving and the most merciful. And you know, like that was such a, a point of comfort. I felt like it was um, it was really speaking to to me directly when I was at that moment. And so I I just wanted to share that because for anyone who you know goes through um, that that experience of self hatred and disgust um, and just the feeling of you know, darkness, like how, how could, how could God ever accept me or forgive me? Um, you know, that, that is there for, for you. It's, I think it's for everyone. Everyone's been at that moment in time. So, um, I, I was just happy to experience that verse again. So just wanted to share that. That's it. Short and sweet tonight. And looking forward to another incredible session. May Allah, um, help us really digest just all of the beauty because we we have so much coming at us, it's hard to really take it all in, but I, I hope, inshallah, we can take the time to give it its due. Thank you. As-salamu alaykum.
1: rahman rahim Alhamdulillah, <laughs> rabbil alameen wa subhanAllah al-Alihi wa rajeem. As-salatu ala Muhammad, al al-Nabiyyin al-Mursil alamin ولا ال ال واصحابه ومكتبوا باحسان الى يوم الدين ان شاء الله tonight we will um talk about surah abas uh, i think um, it's surah number 80 in uh, the quran surat abbas uh, is an early meccan revelation Um, probably in the early twenties in the low twenties so by the time that uh, what precedes surat abbas you have al alak Al-Qalam, Al-Muzammir, al of course Al-Fatihah, um, al surah Surat Al-Layl, Surat Al-Fajr. Uh, so about twenty or so of the short surahs that are um, that are uh, Typical of the Meccan, early Meccan period, like Ducha, Surah Al Asr, Al Adiyat, Kafirun, Al Falak, Nas, and so on. And but it is, there are reports that um, Surah Abbas was. The, the reports of of um, alternative names for Surat Abbas uh, there are, uh, a few reports that say that it could have been titled Surat al safra or al safra uh, Some reports say it's Sur Surat al ama uh, but it's obvious that these narratives of these alternative titles to Surat Abbas. Uh, never gained traction and never became uh, firmly established and that uh, fairly early on uh, the consensus that developed is that Surah Abbas has a title that and of course Abbas means he frowned and it's significant because it's like what 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 is the symbol for that you're going to remember the surah by. Uh, And the surah then is remembered by the main historical occasion uh, that was the reason for the revelation of the surah. Um, Which, considering what the surah is, I think is quite reasonable uh, that in fact it it becomes known as Surah Tabas. Okay, so the occasion for revelation is reported very widely and fairly consistently. There is a man in Mecca uh, he is he has a, a, a title of Abdullah uh, Ibn Umm Maktoum so Abdullah the son and his the Kunya the um, the uh, um, name given to his mother is Umm Maktoum. Uh, Maktoum is a child who's born blind. So his mother became known as Umm Maktoum because her son was born blind. Report, some reports say it's because Abdullah himself was bo- born blind. Other reports say no, she had another child who was born blind before Abdullah. But it's likely that it's Abdullah himself who's born blind and so she got that title of Umm Maktoum. Um now the reason that Abdullah is known not by the name of his father but by the name of his mother uh because he's the son of Umm Maktoum. he's not the son of Abu such and such but the son of Umm Maktum so the the um there were individuals in Arab and Islamic history, that um, became famous, or that were known by the by the title given to the mother rather than the title given to the father, and in the case of our friend Abdullah, um, it, it was because his mother was from if strong and honorable tribe. She was from the tribe of Ibn Mahzum. Um, and the father was from a rather lowly tribe. And so it, it was not unusual that if the mother comes from the superior tribe that the son would be known by the mother's name. So, in anyway, uh, Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum, although his mother is from an honorable tribe, he himself is, um, uh, is a rather a poor person. And um, he's blind and he is of very modest means. And um, within Meccan society, he does not have a high status. And on in particular day, the Prophet ﷺ, this is very, remember this is early on in the da'wah and early on in the message, and the Prophet is hopeful to convince the elite of Mecca that, um, uh, of the message, to, to get them to accept the Islamic message or at least certain individuals within uh, the elite to accept the Islamic message and on this particular day he met with a, several of the of the uh, of the elite of Mecca the, the the richest and the most powerful in Mecca and he was having a an impassioned discussion with them trying to convince them to convert to Islam. And along comes Ibn Umm Maktoum comes into the area where the Prophet is discussing, is having discussion with this elite and he interrupts the discussion uh, with a question. There are different reports as, as to what exactly he was saying Um, It it doesn't really matter, but, you know, some say that he would just said to the prophet, teach me what God has taught you, broad questions. Uh, Others said that he had a specific question about specific surahs. Um, uh, Anyway, so you get some variance as to what precisely he was interrupting the, the discussion about, but um whether he knew that the 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 prophet ﷺ was having these the the, the discussion was elite or or not um knowing his personality and in, in later we we know quite a bit about ibn umm Maktoum, um My guess is that he's, he it it, it will not be surprising if he was well aware that the discussion was going on and he decided to interrupt. Um, He was not very reverential towards the elite of Mecca and um, uh, was often defiant. Um, While they looked down on him because he was blind and because he was poor, uh, especially after he becomes a Muslim, uh, he's a very proud man, and um, he has a clear sense of his own dig- dignity and his own identity, and that uh, he, he is often defiant towards the elite of Mecca. And in the heat of the discussion, the Prophet sallam, doesn't speak harshly to him But um, he's unhappy about the interruption. And although Ibn Umm Maktoum doesn't see it, but reportedly the Prophet frowns. Um, What precisely does the Prophet say to Ibn Umm Maktoum? There there are again variant reports. Uh, Some say that. Ibn maktoum phrased a question and the Prophet just answered shortly or tritely, no. Um, something. The question was something like, uh, am I on the wrong path? And the Prophet just says no. Uh, other reports say that the Prophet actually told him, not now, I can't answer your question now, I'm, I'm talking to these people. Now, as Al Razi points out in his tafsir, if you accept normal social mores, is if a discussion is going on with the elite of Mecca and someone comes in and interrupts with a question. It is not a sin if you refuse to indulge that interruption. And it's not even rude if you refuse to indulge that interruption. Um, If you get irritated and you, you Tell this person, you know, I'm, I'm talking to these people, wait. Um, it is not really a, a, a sin and probably not rude or impolite either. So, as Arazi points out, well, so why does this surah, in the surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? chides the Prophet for his response. Because the Amasa al the opening of the Surah is clearly addressing this situation. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala criticizes the Prophet for his response to Ibn Umm Maktum. Some commentators who, especially the commentators later in late Islam, uh, who are uncomfortable with the idea of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chiding the Prophet, or correcting the Prophet, or blaming the Prophet, uh, try to say that no, Allah is not really chiding the Prophet and it's not really blaming the Prophet for anything or is not really correcting the Prophet. The problem with this position is that we have plenty of reports uh, later on after the migration to Medina where the the Prophet, after this revelation, uh, Ibn Umm Maktoum becomes someone who is very dear to the Prophet. And the Prophet ﷺ, in numerous reports, when he would see Ibn Umm Maktoum, he would say, Welcome, welcome to the person who Allah chided me about. So we have these, the, the, the Prophet ﷺ honors Ibn Maktoum um, and constantly refers to him as the man who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chided me about. Um, which I mean, again, it, it, all, if, all events, if when we talk about following the sunnah, reflect on the sunnah. Reflect on the Sunnah. Because this is early on in the Meccan message. And the Prophet's position, to say the least, is very socially and politically sensitive. And he is meeting with the elite of Mecca and having a conversation and then Ibn Umm Maktoum strolls in. For there to be a surah that tells the Prophet, you've done wrong, is in our lingo today is politically problematic and socially a challenge. Moreover, the surah, by doing what it did, it effectively um, told the elite of Mecca, as far as God is concerned, Ibn Ummah Maktoum has priority over you. Well, this pissed off the elite of Mecca. And while the Prophet was eager to convince them to at least not be so hostile, even if they don't convert, to at least not be so hostile, not be so threatened by... And and because they were starting to persecute the... uh, Abbas comes in and says, nope, uh, this man is more worthy in Allah's eyes than you guys, which angers them. And it makes the Prophet's job harder and it makes them less cooperative and it makes them more stubborn and it makes them more hostile. So, It was it was a, a, a momentous revelation in, in the moment that it occurred precisely because it was ag- it was against the grain of political opportunity or social opportunity or political functionality or social functionality. Uh, to put it bluntly, it upheld a principle, an ethic, over all else, making, no question, the life of the Prophet much harder. And the record is actually quite clear. Not only that, but it, no question, was also somewhat embarrassing to the Prophet because here is the Qur'an telling him you've done wrong. Incidentally, there there are reports that the hypocrites of Medina years later, um, they, they remember the hypocrites were people who converted to Islam but were not Muslim, and they, they opposed Islam um, in their own little circles and their own little cliques, and among the reports we have is that uh the the hypocrites would mock the prophet والسلام, uh, by reciting We have another report that the hypocrites would get together and uh, uh Omar when he was um Umar uh, heard, Umar ibn al-Khattab, heard that the hypocrites uh, would get together and would only recite in their prayer uh, in other words as a way of putting the Prophet down and there are different narratives about what Umar does about it, some of them not very believable because some of them get says he takes his sword and he goes and kills people but that, that's not reliable. Others, Umar uh, ibn Khattab goes and complains to the prophet to do something about it, uh, and the prophet says, don't worry about it. Um, another report is that he goes and confronts them, and there's a fist fight. Anyway, but it is clear that Abbas wa um from a historical perspective, it was a um, uh, an awkward moment. So let's look at the, the 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 ethic itself and what was entailed in this revelation. So again, for just to be very clear, the the very opening of the verse. Uh, you note that Abbas gets to the point right away. It doesn't start out with or this is the Quran, uh, um, this is the glorious Quran, the, the truth from your Lord or anything. It right away gets to the point. He frowned and turned away because the blind man came to him. And what would apprise thee. Perhaps he would have purified himself or be reminded such a reminder might benefit him and so on. So it gets to the point right away and it's basically telling the Prophet you shouldn't have frowned, you shouldn't have turned away, in fact this blind man who came to you seeking to purify himself, uh, seeking to be a better Muslim, should have taken priority over the elite of Mecca who you are trying to attract to Islam. Underscore this point, a revelation against political opportunism and social functionality. A revelation that very early on is saying there are principles and the principles are more demanding than the normal social mores that Meccan society is aware of and accustomed to. And in order to explain the ethic um, The Prophet والسلام, himself, when when commenting about Abbas Watawallah years later, says, ديني, or that if someone If someone um, gives weight to a rich person over a poor person, this person has lost one-third of their faith, one-third of the religion. تَحَامَلَ فَقِيرٌ لِغَنِي Literally, if you... In any way, give preference to a wealthy individual over someone who's not wealthy. In in many different contexts and in a variety of situations. Also, commenting on Abbas, the Prophet, years later, he was in Medina at this time, and then he says, Al-Aziz Man A'azzahullahu bil iman that who is considered honorable, a person of honor, in Allah's eyes, is according to your iman, not according to your wealth. So the rest of the narrative he says that. um I'll uh, I'll paraphrase it 'cause I'll paraphrase it because I don't, I can't remember, it no, I know, but that among people there are those who is the the someone who is not respected because they're not rich and not powerful. ولكنَّهُ that but they are honored and of a high status with Allah. And among you people, there are a lot of people who are honored, but they are dhalil with Allah. They are honorable with you, but they are of no honor with Allah. And the challenge is in fact, if you want to act according to Islamic virtue and Islamic ethics is to mold your ethics on this earth according to the ethics that are acceptable to Allah in heaven. If somehow the ethics that you implement among you on this earth are desperate and different from the ethics that are acceptable to Allah in alam al ghaib in the world of the unseen, then we have a problem. And so, when the Prophet والسلام, himself educates us on why the reason for Abbas first I start with the Prophet, then I'll then I'll talk about the commentators and and so and my own take on Abbas. is that it's a tough and difficult moral lesson early on for the Prophet himself but also for early Muslims. And the tough and difficult lesson is that one the word of truth must be upheld even if it is against the Prophet. So, as a lot of commentators noted, and unfortunately as so many modern Muslims have completely forgotten, if you can imagine that the truth has to be spoken even with a a Prophet, How about someone less than a prophet? A scholar, a king, a ruler, a governor, whatever you will, a megalomaniac, someone who thinks a narcissist, whatever it is, but the principle is that even if it is uncomfortable, but this society is a society that has to be built on the principle of truth and honesty. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will speak the word of truth even if it is politically inopportune and socially uncomfortable. Second, is that early on in your da'wah, in trying to get the, and this is like basically the Prophet ﷺ at this point is just trying to get Islam on his ground, on its feet. If you are going to play the game of political opportunism, there is, there is no path forward. now why if if as a Razi points out well you know is it it's not really a sin to tell someone you don't interrupt so what's the issue here the issue they say for who also فهو اجدر بِالْعِنَايَةِ لان مثله يكون سريعا الى انكسار انكسار خاطره so what this says is that because this man is poor and blind sahib dirara meaning he is a person with a setback a person with a with uh, um, uh, um, a, a, disability, disability, disability. Uh, handicap, disability, right? Yeah. yeah, a person with a handicap and a disability, and because he is sahib darara, he deserves special attention. bil Why? Because. He, would, he especially would be easily hurt. So it is profound. The moral lesson that comes very early on is what in our modern lingo is affirmative action. Taught by Islam hundreds of years ago, right? Sahib Dirara. someone was a handicap, And in Allah's eyes, this person, because he is pious, because he wants to learn, because he is handicapped, because of all of this, this person, because he's from a lowly tribe, is in Allah's eyes more important than the elite of Mecca who are arrogant and haughty and argumentative and rich and entitled and all of that. And so he gets preference. And indeed, as I said, that the Prophet ﷺ responds to this situation not by being embarrassed, not by trying to hide it, not by trying to fudge it, but by celebrating Abdullah ibn Umm and constantly referring to him as the special man who was the instrument for Allah to teach me a moral lesson. So he would say, rabbi bi. Allah taught me a lesson through this man. So that is a man deserving of great honor. Just to tell you, Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum <clears throat> remained poor and, of course, blind. He migrated from Mecca to Medina with, um, with, with the, uh, the Mecca Muslims. Um, but the, 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 him and Bilal were the two main people during the, during the adhan in Medina for the entire Medina period. So Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum and Bilal were the two people doing the adhan. But also the Prophet, a.s.a.s. Um, trusted him and became, drew him very close so several times when the Prophet went out on uh, in, uh, for, uh, in wars, so he accompanied armies, and in the company of these armies left uh, Medina. Several times he appointed Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum as his deputy in Medina. So he appointed him to to lead prayer. Uh, and to um, govern Medina as the prophet's deputy in the prophet's absence. Um, so, I mean, consider someone who was at the very bottom rung in, in Mecca, in, in, in Nobody, is now the prophet's rep- deputy on more than one occasion and at least two occasions, if not more, some reports say much more than two, some reports say just two, anyway. uh, But definitely that he is appointed as as the Prophet's deputy in his absence. Um, And Abdullah ibn Maktoum himself was apparently a man of of, of remarkable uh, faith because uh, although blind, he kept wanting to go out with Muslim armies in battle. And he would tell Muslims, let me be the uh, flag bearer, the, the bearer of the standard during battle. And if you if you let me bear the standard, um, you know, I'm blind. I'm not going to run away. I'm just going to stand in place and... The Prophet ﷺ would not let him go out in battle, um, obviously because he was blind. Uh, after the Prophet died, during the governorship of, uh, during the Khilafah of Umar ibn al-Khattab, um, Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum does go out in a battle and it's a battle of Qadusiyya. Um which is one of the major battles in around 14 uh, hijra or 15 hijra or so. And um, he is found dead after the battle with holding onto the the, uh, standard, the Muslim standard. So he went out as a standard bearer and gripped onto it and was killed in battle and his body was found dripping onto the standard. So he dies as a martyr. But some r- remarkable figures, you know, that we are well advised to learn about. S- someone who could have lived and died in Mecca, nobody ever heard of him, becomes uh, a major figure of inspiration. Okay, let's stop and pray Maghrib. And come back. Rahman Rahim. So let's start. So the opening verses, and Ama. وما يدركه يتذكر ويتذكر أما من استغنى فأنت له عليك إلا يتذكر من جاءك يسعى وهو يخشى فأنت عنه تلهى. So this is up to verse ten frowned and turned away the blind, blind man came to him and the rhetorical question and what would apprise thee or how do you know perhaps he would purify himself or be reminded that which is the Quran itself is called zikr which is the reminder so perhaps he would when you say zakkaru it means would he would pursue some form of remembrance such that the reminder might benefit him as for him who deems himself beyond need the, these are the elite of Mecca, the who are arrogant and deems themselves be estagna, the, the Arabic literally means someone who is so arrogant that they think that they're self-sufficient they they, it's hard for them to accept the idea that uh that they would submit not just to not just follow muhammad wasallam but even submit to to god or that they would be in need of anything beyond themselves uh but as to as to those who deem themselves beyond need, you attend to them. Um, though you are not answerable, should they not be purified? And we'll come back to this. But as to him who came to you striving earnestly while fearful from him, you are diverted or from him you turn away. And so this is the opening of Surah Abbas. Um, noteworthy that it describes the elite that have a very problematic position as stagna. Those who arrogantly think of themselves as self-sufficient or arrogantly think of themselves as um, not in need of guidance. Um, And um, underscoring what will become a consistent theme, and throughout the Qur'an أَنْ that it is not up to you who in fact is guided or not and throughout the Qur'an both Meccan and Medinian period because some Muslims are influenced by Islamophobes who try to say that oh well you know the the Quran in the Meccan period said that um, that there is no compulsion in religion but then in the Medinian period uh, it changed and that's simply not true as we all see Um, it remains a consistent idea throughout the Quran that who is guided and who's not guided is not up to you and it's not up to human beings and that you don't control people. Um, It is not up to you and not something that you should be uh, beating yourself over. Consistently from the, throughout, you have to do what's right. The results are up to Allah. Now, you know, of course, the, the, the Islamophobes, they um, co-opt a silliness that occurs in the Islamic tradition, is that you do have those who said that the so-called ayat al safe, the uh, sword, the verse, or the verse that mentions the sword, uh, abrogated all the verses that say things like that abrogated all the verses that say uh, uh, you don't control people, whether they believe or not is something that is ultimately beyond control, your control. But as I've written, uh, that view was it never became um, uh, uh, unchallenged or became dominant in the Islamic tradition, that's one. But second, it's very problematic to say that a single verse in the Qur'an uh, abrogates some 30-plus verses, and if you count all the verses that talk about choice, there are over 100 verses. Um, And the, the sword verse itself is highly contextual, as we will see, and it's highly contingent, so it... One can comfortably say that the principle throughout the Qur'anic revelation in Allah talking to the Prophet ﷺ is that you don't control people and you are but a messenger. And that the same principles goes beyond the Prophet. The idea that you don't control people and whether they believe or not is not up to you. Okay. So it's important here before we move on to know that Surat Abbas in conjunction with several other surah, like for instance, when the Quran says, how do you know, or what is it that Um, opens the door for salvation, it is to free a slave or to feed an orphan or to help an orphan or to feed a a, a poor person, that the Quran reaffirms what we already encountered in Surah Al-Zumar, that The issue is not just to do good, but the issue is to do what is beautifully good. So, while from a technical perspective you could say you you could say that you, you could tell someone don't interrupt, but that is not what beauty calls for. Beauty calls for beyond what is technical and what is simply socially acceptable. And this is a critical point because I think in contemporary Islam Muslims often forget this. It it is not enough that they do what is in the law books, halal or haram, but they are called upon to do what is beyond that, what you would say, so you know, if you want the, the fancy name for it, virtue ethics, but if you don't want to be, if you just want to use common language, is to do what a beautiful human being would do. Now, this is particularly important, particularly important for those who position themselves as teachers or leaders or imams or in any position of guidance and leadership in the Muslim Allah. Ideally, Ideally, when the Prophet tells us, Each of you are responsible for someone, and you are accountable for who you're responsible for. Ideally, a father in a family would do what is beautiful, not simply what is acceptable or what is good, but what is beautiful. Ideally, a mother in a family would do what is beautiful. But where the responsibility becomes very serious is when someone positions themselves as a teacher of Islam or as in any way representative of the divine will. This is a critical point because, I've mentioned this before, In my limited experience with Islamic movements as I was growing up in the Middle East, is I found a lot of Islamic movements accepting the logic of siyasa sharia of political opportunism, rather than the logic of virtuous leadership that it is not an issue, you're not just another political party, you're not there to just compete and get ahead just like everyone. You're there to set a moral example of virtue, of how godliness can be beautiful. In the same way that I said that a lot of Islamic movements I found surprising that they didn't worship that much but even more troubling, in my view, is that they didn't expend a lot of energy into thinking about what would be truly beautiful. Because beauty beauty is often contextual and contingent. Beauty is not simply the, art, the, 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 the perennial principles of beauty such as justice, balance, proportionality, certain things. But beyond the perennial principles of beauty, it is often context dependent. And if your soul is not itself beautiful, you can't generate beauty. So... If the Prophet والسلام, was not a beautiful human being, can you imagine Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and says, frowned and turned away when the blind man came to him and how do you know that he would not be guided? If the Prophet والسلام, was not beautiful, you would say, well, I didn't turn away. I didn't really frown. It wasn't really a frown. I just told him to wait for a second I just told him, I'll get to you soon enough. I just said, you know, I would start having an important conversation for God's sake. Well, you know, I want to set my boundaries and I want people to know what my boundaries are. Otherwise, I'm going to be bouncing all over me. I mean, the, the endless rationalizations. A beautiful human being responds to beauty. And that's the lesson of Abbas. It's not an easy lesson. It's a very, very, very hard lesson. It's a hard lesson because it says, beautify yourself and rise above egoism. Don't do what is simply correct and good but do what is truly beautiful. I mean, the, the figures in Islamic history that have survived in memory as sort of larger than life figures, figures who've been truly luminaries of Islamic uh, teachings, I would say that, uh, I mean, when you study their life, you, you truly find that they were beautiful human beings. Beautiful in their family, beautiful outside their family, you know, just... Um, one of the things that bothers me enormously is that in, in modern Islam, you could have scholars who claim to be experts in Sharia, for instance, but are, are not beautiful human beings not they're not immoral, but they're not beautiful either they're just they're, they're like jurists um, technocrats they 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 know the technicalities of the law
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but law without guiding principles of virtue, can become a very harsh thing and can become a very ugly thing. Okay, and after that opening salvo, that, as I said, had reverberations and very powerful opening Surah Abbas then moves on to say something about the nature of the message itself kalla innaha tazkirah faman shaa'a dhakrah this is a reminder for those who want to be reminded and you will notice again and again as we'll talk about later in the Quran that Allah's insistence that it is all contingent on your will for those who wish to be reminded fi sohfin mukarrama marfu'atin mutahara bi'aydi safara kiramin barara let's see how these are the, the study of quran translates this as these are honored pages exalted and purified in the hands of scribes noble and pious okay um we'll have to unpack this a little bit This is a reminder for whoever wish to be reminded or whoever wish to be reminded of God. Honored pages. This is the, the, the verses that I'm gonna comment on. First, Sof in often the Qur'an refers to revelation as suhuf, uh, which literally could, uh, um, uh, are whether actual written pages or um, symbolic, or um, it, it doesn't matter because it, for instance, the Qur'an talks about suhuf Musa. The suhuf, the pages of Musa, meaning the revelation of Musa. uh, Or suhuf Isa, the revelation of Isa, uh, Jesus. You know, whether some commentators said, well, this is because there were uh, uh, people who would write the revelation on whatever writing material they had at at that early period. Uh, I think it's it's immaterial because the, Quran, the the it is pretty consistent that the Quran refers to revelation as suhuf. Whether these pages are ethereal in, in, in some divine tablet, what does a divine tablet mean? It doesn't matter really. Okay. But marfu'at al-mutahara, marfu'at al-mutahara exalted and purified ID safra in the hands of safra. We'll talk about safra in a second. And kiramim barara, noble and pious. The revelation referred to as suhuf as some type of some, maybe a symbol of a, 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 some scripted thing. Fine. But, and that this revelation, Marfu'at al-Mutahara is exalted um, and purified. What does purified Mutahara mean in this context? Why does Allah call it Mutahara? Some Qur'anic commentators said, well, this is because no one is supposed to handle revelation um, unless they are pure, that um, uh, we are commanded to always preserve the revelation in purified, you know, you're not allowed to, uh, I mean, I think there's no reason for that literalism. It's exalted and purified, here mutahara means that it is purified of anything that is impure. Immorality is impure. Sin is impure. Demonic influences are impure. So marfu'at al mutahara, exalted and purified. But when it says bi'aydi safara Kiramin barara, with the hands of Safra, the study Quran translates it as scribes. As uh, Safra comes from the word Sifr and Sifr is something written and Safir is a writer. The reason that, um, that a writer is referred to as Safir is because a writer is supposed to clarify things to make things clear so for instance we say when we want to say that the morning have shown you say as, far as sabah the morning has become clear so now where, why do we pause at the word sif? because sif is not Uh, It's an Arabized word. Safara in Hebrew means warrakun. Warrakun are like scribes, like people that make paper or make writing material and that work with writing material. Safara in Nabatean language meant... Um, readers. Now, the word Safra moved into Arabic. Did it move into Arabic from Nabataean or from Hebrew? It's not clear. And the word Safra has been used in Arabic sometimes to mean readers, sometimes to mean scribes. But when Allah Subh'anaHu Wa ta'ala says, be سَفَرَة كِرَامٍ Who are these scribes that Allah is referring to? Is Allah talking about human scribes, the scribes of the Quran, that Allah is telling us this Quran is going to be preserved by the scribes of the Quran, those people who were committed to copying all the revelation and preserving it from the time of the Prophet ﷺ until the time all of this is collected? Or... Is Allah referring to Bi Aidi to another nuance to the meaning of the word safara, and that is ambassadors or conveyors or messengers. And here Ba'aidi Safara would refer to angels. So we could have translated it in the hands of angel- angels noble, and pious. And I think that, in fact, the Aide refers to angels and doesn't refer to scribes. That that's probably the correct meaning. That this is a remembrance for whoever will, wants to be reminded. This remembrance is sent to you by your Lord, conveyed by honorable exalted messengers, which again for early Meccan revelation is a critical point to underscore. قتل (laughs) الإنسان ما أكفره من أي شيء خلقه من نطفة خلقه فقدره ثم السبيل يصره ثم أماته فأكبره ثم إذا شاء أنشره كلا لما يخدم أمره قتل الإنسان ما أكفره study Quran translated May man perish how ungrateful is he Um in is, Saruma Akfara is idiomatic. And I would have translated it as woe to humans, how ungrateful are they. Because kotula doesn't really it, it's not really a prayer for anyone to be perished or for anyone to perish. Kotula is idiomatic to say woe unto someone. Uh or you know like in English when you say, alas, or something like that. Uh, so, a comments on the human condition says the tendency of human beings is ingratitude. And this ingratitude is often will be what prevents them from coming to the message. Now, Ingratitude is a moral defect because ingratitude often is interlinked with egoism and even forms of narcissism and egocentrism. Uh, the same moral defect that makes a human being thinks and now that they're self-sufficient, is also what makes them often ungrateful. But <clears throat> if you remember very early on, I told you, and I don't remember when exactly, but it was very early. I said it is as if we are born in a factory, and this factory is, is working, you know, different people are assigned different tasks in this factory, this factory has an owner. You might never meet the owner in person, but you know that this owner exists. And everything is, is, has a meticulous order in the factory, but you born in the factory, you say, well, you know, I am going to indulge in whatever is offered to me in this factory, I'm going to enjoy whatever I enjoy from whatever this factory offers, offers, but my attitude is fundamentally one of ingratitude because no one asked me if I wanted to be born into this factory. So while I'm gonna eat whatever I want to eat and drink whatever I want to drink and live in whatever the homes the factory offers and sleep in whatever beds the factory offers and dress whatever clothes the factory gives me, I'm grateful to no one and I thank no one and I won't even acknowledge that this factory owns to is owned by anyone. Um, if that happens in, in real life, we would say this person is a jerk. Now, the moral defect of this attitude is, well, if you truly are, un, if you truly want to object to your existence, because and you don't believe that anyone has made this, and you don't want to be born, and you think that because no one consulted you, why should you be grateful for anything, then kill yourself then check out. But if you stay and you avail yourself of what this world has to offer, then you can't say, I'm going to be ungrateful. Either you take yourself out and truly be an objector to the game, but if you stay, then you are benefiting all the time from whatever largest this creation offers you. So when Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala says ma how ungrateful human beings are and then alerts you to how human beings have been created out of practically nothing like everything else in, in creation Something comes from something, but it is the microscopic that, that um, flowers into complex realities. And these complex realities require complex codes. And to believe that from the this very simple... Uh, structure, often not even visible to the eye, that these complex things come to be coded the way they are. You know, something coded to be a bird, something coded to be a spider, something coded to be a human, something coded to be a cow, something coded to be a flower, that to believe that this is all just by coincidence is what the Quran repeatedly reminds us of in different ways when it says, from what have you been created? When the Quran says, you were created from nutfa, an embryo into a full human being, what what effectively the Quran is saying is, reflect upon the reality of the codes. That there, there is a designer, an engineer behind this existence. and that you are come out of practically nothing, you're born, summa sabila that then you are granted great facility. Elsewhere the Quran then elaborates upon this and says that you become capable of reasoning and you become capable of arguing and you become capable of objecting and protesting and accepting yourself. You've become capable of all types of things and then just as you were born, you wither away and you die. Just like a plant as it's born and so on. And you go from great strength to, uh, to ultimately weakness and death. And then the constant promise that Allah reminds us of, ثُمَّ shaa sha'a أَنْشَرَحَ that when Allah wills in the same way that you were brought about the first time, Allah will bring you again. And that that is for your Lord, not a big deal. You might think it is, but it's not. Um, كَلَّا لما Uh, this is 23 yeah uh, the Tadak Quran translates it nay but uh, humans have not accomplished what they have been commanded Um, it's not quite that this is in, in Abbas there is no sharia yet, right? There are only 20 surahs. There are no laws, extensive laws that have been commanded. Um, the commands of the divine are actually quite few by the time Abbas is revealed. But, is more idiomatic to mean that human beings have been dis- have not discharged what they're obligated to discharge morally. It, so if, for instance, is gratitude is an ethical principle and you're ungrateful, that would apply to you. <inaudible> uh, if you are someone who Although not a Muslim, but you um, steal the inheritance of orphans, that would apply to you. Even if even if there is even if you don't accept the law, it's the ethical, moral laws that are inherently applicable to human beings. So. But but there is another nuance to is that as the, the phrasing itself implies that human beings will never be able, will never be capable of discharging all their moral obligations. So it is, it, it also sets the expectation that it is not perfection that God wants. But as many commentators note, it is it's the sincere effort at, in fact, discharging your obligations. Then we have What often the Quran reminds us of is to reflect and think about nature. Hasn't human beings considered or pondered the food that they eat, that we pour water down, we bring water down, and that this water splits fissures in the earth, cracks the soil, opens the soil, and that grains grow from that, and that vines and herbs grow, and the olives and date palms grow, and that then there are hadaiqa there are dense, densely, dense gardens that grow, and that there are fruits and pastures, and that all of that is provided for you and your flock. So we understand this this uh, um, often occurring Quranic style that tells you reflect upon nature. nature that it, it, For all of that to come about, it needs a synchronicity for the cycle of life to be completed. It needs a synchronicity that doesn't happen as happenstance. It, it, you know, the flock, the, the, the animals have to have their provisions. You have to have your provisions. You have to have variety in provisions. You have to have the different types of food substances. So it is a, as some moderns have referred to it, it's like a creating an whole encyclopedia that that doesn't come by coincidence. However, I flag this language for a um, for a different reason. Sufi-esque interpreters of the Qur'an understood the same language very differently than the reference to observing just pastures and herbs and fruits and so on. So I'm gonna just give you a quick example. Um, if I'm able to find it. You're
0: like me today about iPad. <laughs> <laughs> I right. was waiting like, for it. It's I'm like bad. it's not in my department anymore. It? It's like it to Rami.
1: <laughs> are, are you saying that if Rami would have cut and paste this, then we would have done it very quickly?
0: <laughs> no, that's not right.
1: <laughs> Are you saying that you didn't get me the iPad?
0: You don't need one. You have, you have space. Yeah, but... You should vindicate me.
1: you <laughs> Are <laughs> getting hate mail? No, love, love mail. Someone
0: said, I feel compelled to remind you about the iPad.
1: Nasih mail. Nasih mail, yeah. Let's let's be- uh... Okay, someone has to be blamed. I don't know who. <laughs>
0: but,
1: Okay, wait. Steve Jobs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so here, here is the the quote. For الإنسان إلى طعامه أي الحسي والمعنوي وهو قوت القلوب والأرواح. أن صببنا ماء, ماء العلوم والواردات على قلوب الميتة فحيت قال القشيري صببنا ماء الرحمة على القلوب القاسية فلانت للتوبه وماء التعريف على القلوب الصافية فنبتت فيها أظهار التوحيد والنار والتجريد ثم شققنا أرض البشرية بأنواع العبادات والعبودية شقة فأنبتنا فيها في قلبها حب المحبة وكرم الخمره الأزلية، وقبل الزه الزهد في ظهرة الدنيا وشهواتها، وزيتونا يشتعل بزيتها بمصابيح العلوم، ونخلة يجني منه منها ثمار حلاوة المعاملة، وحدائق أي بساتين المعارف متكاثفة الدجليات، وأبى and so on and so forth. So what he's saying is they don't understand these references just to food and seeds and herbs and so on. However, what they they I'll try to paraphrase the quote. Say, Let human beings look at their food and say this is not just physical food but spiritual food. And the spiritual food is is what feeds your heart and your spirit. It's like Allah is saying fe what, what what is your what is the, the the spirits your your spirits food what is your spirits nourishment so it says when Allah says <laughs> we've poured the water down he says this is a reference and and if we could take a very long time explaining the roots of like why water means certain things and why that means certain things and so on but water means in in this context um, is knowledge that brings a dead heart to life. So, so this is a reference to the type of knowledge that Allah sends to bring an apathetic confused human being who has no point or purpose of in life into a living human being that understands their place. It is often referred to as the water of mercy because if you have no knowledge of your purpose in existence, you exist without mercy divine mercy, Um, that, in fact, this divine water of mercy, the the water of knowledge, uh, is what softens hard hearts when hearts understand that they are an extension of the divine and that they are but extensions that will return to the rightful owner, from the divine to the divine, their egoism and egocentrism and their arrogance softens. And when it softens, they are less harsh, less um, draconian in their behavior. وَمَا الْتَعْرِيثَ عَلَ قُلُوبِ الصَّافِيَةِ فَنَّبَتَ تِيهَ عَذَارِ التوحيد وَأَنْوَارِ التَّجْرِيدِ The, the light of Tawheed, light of belief, shines in your heart. ثُمَّ شِخَقْنَ أَرْضِ الْبَشَرِيَّ بِأَنْوَعَ الْعِبَادَاتِ And when Allah says that for things to grow in cracked earth or in soil that cracks, they understand this as these are Allah educating us on Ibadat the types of worship that the so much of the Basharia uh, banwal Ibadat that the, the um, uh, it is the Ibadat that allows the arid land of humanity to sprout with healthy nourishment. That when you teach people how to worship, and people, in fact, perform these ibadat, it's literally like the, the, the arid land sprouts with means of nourishment. And when Allah says Zaytun in Sufi discourses, Zaytun often, any reference to Zaytun, is a reference to the illuminations of knowledge, Masabiha al And references to palm trees are often taken as in this situation to Halawat al-Mu'amala, is learning how to deal with human beings and with animals with beauty that you are taught how to worship and you are taught how to deal with beauty. The Hadaiq yeah the the Hadaiq often references in the Quran to gardens are often taken as um, as they call it, meaning when different systems of knowledge, all of these systems leading to illuminations, interlink and interact, that's the garden of knowledge, that you start out only capable of understanding vines, as they say, that you, first, you know, you're starting out on knowledge and it's as if you're just eating mangoes, you're just eating grapes, you're just eating oranges. But as you do irtiqa as you elevate and you become closer and closer to wisdom and learning and divine, that you are capable then of actually seeing gardens. And when you see gardens, by the way, um, when the you become, what marks you is that you become extremely tolerant because you see the complexity of paths that lead to the Lord. And Tajarud, you, um, detachment, from the longings of the earth. The, 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 the things that people fight over and care about stop mattering to you. Let me see if I forgot anything in this quote before I move on. Um, yeah, uh, uh, the, the image of Mara al-Arwah, um, the pasture of the souls, This outlook that you often find in Sufi-isk literature is because of another image that is very common in Sufi writings, and that's pasture of the souls. It's like all souls, like all living things, they need nourishment, they need a soul that is not nourished through the water of knowledge and through the nourishment of um, learning um, and worship. It is exactly like an an animal in a pasture that doesn't have water or doesn't have food. That human beings often focus on nourishing their body but they forget that their souls need nourishment far more than their body does if you don't pay attention to what we pay attention to what goes into our bodies right well you're supposed to, right? Some of us do, at least. Some people like me don't pay attention to what goes into their bodies. But, well, you're supposed to pay attention to what goes into your soul. And what goes into your soul is everything that comes through your senses. So, I mean, I often wonder if some of the people who, I mean, this is a huge tradition and we, I mean, you know, nowadays people talk about yoga and, and Buddhism and so on. Well, once upon a time, it was Muslims that excelled in the sciences of spirituality. It, 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 no one could come close to Muslims in the illuminations of spirituality and soul. It wasn't yoga, it wasn't Buddhism, it wasn't Hinduism, it wasn't any of that stuff. It, it, nothing compared to what the Muslim tradition brought in terms of the caretaking for the soul. And I often wonder if, if the masters, the sages that wrote this material, if they came back to life in our age, uh, what they were think, because everything you listen to and everything you see, um, and everything you occupy your mind with, affects how your soul is nourished or malnourished, or sometimes poisoned. Well, in our days, often poisoned. Uh, there are a lot of toxicity that can affect your soul, and. If you are not careful you could be poisoning your soul all the time and then when you poison your soul and you say well I don't know why is it that I don't my Iman is not very strong I don't know why is it that my Iman goes up and down I don't know why is it that I feel anxious a lot of times I don't know why is it that I feel restless and worried what you put in is what you get out it's it's not it's not that at all surprising. What you put in if you get out. It's like when I get sick, I don't complain. You know, I know that I poison my body all the time, so I just go to the doctor and I keep my mouth shut and you know, and it's and when the doctor starts talking about like how many Cokes I drink and and stuff like that. I just smile and very embarrassed and feel very guilty because I am guilty. And I'm not going to argue. And, you know, I, I know what I'm doing and may Allah forgive me for it. At least that's my sincere hope and will. Um, but your soul is even far more so than your body. Uh, your soul is far more sensitive than your body. Every time Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala put it to you this way, every time Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala tells us, "Look at what you eat." In Sufi esque orientations, they immediately understand that as look at the nourishment for your physical body and look at the nourishment for your ment for your spiritual body, if you will um by the way proper Sufis also tend to be very healthy they don't go to doctors often and they tend to live very long lives um because they also become they they're, they 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 eat the most I mean they rarely eat meat they you know anyway Okay. Mata'an lakum ولانعامكم Sustenance for you and your flock. One of the most interesting things I, I've read, um, and I found, I had written a note for myself about it, but again, because I didn't think I would be teaching this to anyone, I didn't write where I read it, or who the author was, and I couldn't find it last night as I was preparing for the halaqa, I, I couldn't relocate it, but um, someone that wrote that when Allah says Mata'an lakum wa Allah is reminding us that every living, every the cabin, as he says, everything that has a, a liver, has a right to the sustenance that Allah put on earth, and he says, interestingly, to physical sustenance and spiritual sustenance. So apparently he also thinks of animals as needing spiritual sustenance, mm-hmm. uh, equal to that of human beings, and that human beings have no right to deny any of Allah's creatures, the sustenance. Um, and I, I, it, it, you know, I had copied a few of these sentences in my notebook, but it, you know, because I didn't think I would be teaching anyone any of this, so I didn't write. Anyway. Um, Okay. (laughs) Okay. A sacha is, this is now at, we are at 33. Uh study Quran says, so when the piercing cry does come, um, piercing cry comes which all the traditional tafsirs understand as the piercing cry that heralds the coming of the final day. And that when the final day comes, it will be so terrifying that um, no one that people are are separated from their family and confront God as individuals, as as you find in the Sora that the um, uh, that a human being will flee from their brother, their mother and father, their spouse and children, for each one of them, they will be pre- preoccupied. I just told you that flee, there, there is a discussion in of scholars like, it's not that you stop caring about your mother or father or brother or your wife or whatever. It's not that. It, it is, at that point, there will be a transformation in us, where who we are at, until we are go through accountability who we are as brothers husbands wives mothers fathers ceases to be something allah will put in us that our we we only focus on our individual accountability now since we it seems like when we go if we go to hell or we go to heaven we will be aware of our families and we will even be looking for family members that that will come back to us. But just in case one of you says, well, you know, how, how can it be that I would not worry about my child just because there is a piercing cry and the hereafter, that's not that it's not that you stop caring about your child. That's not the point. But Again, I'm going to, to, to stop here and tell you that something that's not often represented in, in modern Muslim literature, that Ibn Ajiba, for instance, says that when Allah says, Fa Ibn Ajiba, uh, like a lot of Sufi tafsirs, they see a double meaning to this as is the piercing cry that could herald the here, hereafter. But, there is another meaning to As-sakha that is fascinating. As-sakha is it, the transformative event linguistically when the transformative event comes. So. Ibn Ajiba, like a lot of other Sufi tafsirs, says that when you study, when you reflect upon your nourishment, the water that you need, the knowledge that you need, the palms that you need, the, the dates that you need, which is symbolic to, for certain types of knowledge, and grapes that you need, symbolic for other types of knowledge and you then reach that point of seeing the gardens of knowledge that nourish the soul comes the Sakha. The Sakha is the transformative event within the soul. And when the Sakha comes, your soul preoccupation, unsak wa shughlak, as they say, Unsak means your your true pleasure. Washughlek is your entire preoccupation becomes your passion for Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. al Adawiya, for instance, has a famous poem where she says, "I sit with people w- in, with my body, while my soul and heart is always with You, talking to God." So that they see Saha as a transformative event that is possible on this earth for those who walk the path. And when that occurs, they are no longer, they, they, they continue loving their, their mother, their father, their, their, their siblings and so on, but their, their entire being and longing and loyalty becomes transformed to God. And so he says, بذكري, That you literally, uh, every opportunity you get to get away from human beings, even your wife, your husband, your brother, your sister, your mother, and to, to be with Allah, you passionately do so. Um, and I'll tell you why why I'm 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 flagging all of this in a second. Okay, wiju niauma is in musfira, to hikatul mustapshira, wa wujunyauma is in alayha gabara, to liquwaha katara, ula ikahumunfajara tul kefera. At that time, there will be radiant and luminous faces, joyous and laughing. And there will be faces as if covered by dust meaning darkened faces, with a shadow Hanging over them like darkness, hanging over them, the same type of darkness, by the way, that you see on human auras when they are in the grip of the demonic. Um, when they surround themselves with very negative and dark ideas, they're literally like a like a dark cloud that hangs over them. It's not it's not idiomatic. These are. uh, Al Fajrā profugates people who have been. People who have have committed offenses against the self. And a kafara could even be the literal meaning here. These are the truly ungrateful, those who have been ungrateful and or disbelievers or the, the ungrateful. For the Sufi esque tafsirs they they say that either you live your life, your face, your your body is surrounded by the luminous and the beautiful, or you live your life struggling with shades of darkness. And that in fact your aura often in life can be a fairly good predictor as to your fate in your here, in the hereafter. That's what they say. I don't now take a step back and let's consider Surah Tabas. One of the most, um, one of the the things that have, um, the things that have always Fascinated me about Surah Abbas is that the Prophet Ali Sattar at one point comments to his companions saying, Lau Annakum Takuni Takuno is a harashtum in Indi, Kama Takuno, Indi, Lasafa Hatkum, Lasafa Hatkum in Mana Eker. That when you This is the, the, uh, some of the companions complained to the prophet that when they are with him, they feel a sense of beauty, they feel a sense of repose, a sense of peace. The world makes sense, and everything falls in place. And they understand what is beautiful, so and this was in the context of someone having made fun of someone, which the Prophet got upset about and said, "This is jahili. Uh, this is jahiliya. Don't, don't mock each other." And he said, "You know, but when we are with you, we 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 know what's beautiful. But when we leave, leave you, things get confusing." And. The Prophet a.s. A.s. comments on this and says, you know, if you were if you were if, if the way you are with me is the same as you when you are not with me, it's literally the, it's as if the angels would walk hand in hand with you. Meaning you would become as if angels, angelic. Now what's interesting is that this hadith is often mentioned when commentators are discussing Surat Abbas and that it required an elevated moral conduct and inspired the the a lot of the Sufi discourses about the nourishment of the soul and about the the is that that who who is truly entitled to who is truly entitled to honor are those who are honorable in, in with God not those who have honor on earth because of their wealth or their, because of their power or because of their strength and long discourses about how a, a truly just society would be a society that would treat people according. To the principles of justice and the principles of honor with Allah, not the principles of material honor, and so on and so forth. But Surah Abbas it comes to tell you if you think that this is just simply about um. Technical justice, or if this is just simply about doing what's right and wrong, think again. This is a path of beauty for the beautiful, a path of luminosity. And understandable as as, as Surah Abbas itself connotes, that when it says um, Um, I'm blanking out as to what it says. Um, that the expectation is you're not going to be able to perfect beauty, but it is the effort and the attempt that is required. And it's the same logic when the Prophet ﷺ talks to the companions who say, you know, when we are with you, things are clear. But when we're away from you, it gets confusing. And the Prophet ﷺ says, yeah, I know. And if, if, if in fact it, it would be angels walking on earth if, if things remained clear throughout, while the fulfillment of beauty is expected from the Prophet, for us it is a goal and an objective that we must always strive for. But as Surah Abbas also makes clear, never worry as to whether we in fact, the fact that we are unable to achieve it. Does not should never dissuade us from the attempt at doing so, because what human experience shows us in fact that when you tell people talk to people about beauty, for instance, the first thing you get is oh it's impractical, you know how often have human beings been able to achieve what is truly beautiful uh you know the problem with virtual earth ethics is that. Can you really expect human beings to be virtuous? Surah Qavas is among those surahs, not the only surah, but it's among that surah that tells you it doesn't matter. It is the aspiration, that attempt, that must always be your anchor. And that you must always ask yourself, what would be the truly beautiful thing to do? Finally, yes, it's expected from the Prophet but I think it is also expected from those who dare position themselves as teachers of Islam to people. When I see someone who calls themselves an imam, a sheikh, um, whatever, I expect to see beauty from them. And if I don't see beauty, what I can I'm forgiving with all types of other people, but not them, because they, they position themselves uh, and representatives of the divine. And while I think those of them who are beautiful are due the respect that should be owed to those who are representatives of the divine. Those of them who are not beautiful um, are not worthy of that respect. Wellhamdullah and that's Surah Tabas. Um uh... Come announce the two-minute break.
0: <laughs> I have been it's not official oh. unless you announce it. Okay, I've been summoned to announce the two-minute break, um, to send your questions through. <laughs> and I am also here to um, say that we discovered that the sheikh has sufficient... Uh, space on his iPad. So I don't need to get him a new iPad. We just need to figure out how to use it. (laughs) And so, and put the texture he wants on it. So thank you for people who have written to me to say that I feel compelled to remind you about the Sheikh's iPad. Thank you. We're okay. We don't need a new iPad. We just need to know how to use it properly. (laughs) So, alhamdulillah. See you in a few minutes.